0: Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. This is more or less half an hour on your radio, where we talk all about things sciency. Who are we? Well, I am Stu, and with me, as always, is the trusty Chris.
1: Hey, Stu. I'm glad you trust me. Um, I trust you as well.
0: That's good. That's good. I've been trusting you for some years now. Um, now. I trust you have brought in a story for us this week. Oh, uh, look, I don't know if you've noticed
1: lately, it's been kind of awards season, science awards season.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's great. Look at all look at all the look at all the awards, look at all the goals science is kicking. I know. So we've had like things like, you know, the Prime Minister's prizes,
1: the Eureka prizes, and of course the Ig Nobels. But look, let us not ignore the the big ones, the Nobel Prizes. Uh, which are um yeah this is this is the time of the year that we award Nobel prizes and so this week I am going to talk about the the first one that was announced which was the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine.
0: Now with with the with the Nobels they don't announce them all at once do they They sort of they sort of stretch it out over a period of time so you get a... they they dribble out the information bit by bit so so the Physiology Prize. What what's what what is the what's the gist of this prize?
1: I mean, this is one of those ones that they kind of. Um you know, they kind of take a loose definition of physiology and medicine. They, they try to make it, spread it as broad as possible because they want to be able to recognize people from a wide range of disciplines with these prizes. This one was awarded to, I suppose, uh paleontologist, Svante Perbo. I had a look at the pronunciation, I think that's how you pronounce it, Svante Pervo, Um for his discoveries concerning the genomes of extinct hominins and human evolution. Basically, he did two, there's two main things that he did that he's very recognized for. He sequenced the dna of the archaic hominins deandertals um the okay. our famous kind of uh cave dwelling uh relatives and he discovered a new species of early hominins called the denisovans or well, possibly denisovans i've never been quite sure of that pronunciation either
0: well this is, they're not they're not around they're not around to ask anymore so we can't ask them how they would pronounce it
1: well, no, they, they probably
0: wouldn't. They, they, they probably didn't call themselves that, though, did they? They, they
1: probably didn't, no, no. And <laughs> and I don't can't speak for their language abilities. We don't know very much about them. We don't know much about their language abilities at all, I guess. So, mm. uh, yeah, I'll talk about, um, I guess, how they're still quite a mystery. Uh, yeah, look, it's an interesting one. I think this is a really interesting award. Um, you know, I've reflected in the past sometimes about how with a lot of science communication you know you talk about your your science you have to kind of justify its relevance to, to people and the the two exceptions I always use on that one is like space stuff and dinosaurs people are just interested in the space stuff and dinosaurs regardless of any relevance this is kind of the opposite human origins I mean everyone is really interested I think we all feel like we have a stake in human origins it's something that matters a lot to us um, how much it affects our lives directly I can't say but it's something that people are very passionate about So yeah, I'm sure this is a prize that a lot of people will be interested in hearing exactly what happened.
0: Yeah, sure. And um, from humans of the distant past, I'm gonna be talking about humans of the future. Ooh. Uh, Well, I mean, they're already humans. I'm gonna be talking about babies, um, but you know, I guess adults of the future. Um, The... I, I'm looking at a piece of research that was published recently, which I'm sure will be of interest to anyone who has a baby or an infant and they're trying to get them to sleep. Someone has actually, or a group of scientists have gotten together and decided to figure out once and for all, how do you get that damn baby to sleep? Uh, the, the most scientifically uh, tested and... Um, reliable method that they've found. So I'm gonna be talking about that. Uh, and I'm sure, Chris, you will find some interest in that. Although, too late, it's too late, Stu. too late. <laughs> and yeah, I know now we've hit daylight saving in Victoria, it's probably even worse, but look, uh, it might help some of our listeners out there and hopefully will we'll be some advice that people can pass on in the future. So if you ever think you might have to get a baby to go to sleep, Please stay tuned and I'll explain exactly how to do that.
1: Alright, yes, you listen to Lost in Science and we are all excited about a Nobel Prize season. And as I said, the first prize now we probably won't go through them all i think um you know sometimes they're a bit obscure some of the nobel prizes and a bit harder to relate to but this one the Nobel prize in physiology and medicine for 2022 is quite a doozy um as i said in the introduction is awarded to svante Perbo. um again in pronunciation there he, the name is spelled p double a b over the both of the a's in the surname have umlauts over them so it's a challenging one to our English speaking
0: uh, ears, to our, eyes. To our, to our accent free written language in uh, English, yeah. That's
1: right, that's right.
0: Um,
1: but yeah, so uh, as I said, he has he's working on uh, discoveries relating to extinct hominins, which are, I guess, species related to us the homo sapiens um now the ones that he discovered he talked about were the, uh, the neanderthals and the um the denisovans now the neanderthals probably everyone has heard of those at least um they're quite the most famous kind of cave people that you might have heard of they're kind of the stereotype of the ancient humans
0: yeah and also i mean some, somewhat used as an insult i think if if someone is described as so a modern person described as a Neanderthal is often, you know, you're suggesting that they're a bit backwards and not really up with it. And, you know, it's not a very nice thing to call someone.
1: Isn't it though, Stu? We'll get to that. Um, but yeah, like they are the classic ones. So they are named after the Neanderthal Valley in German. And they were they were discovered fairly early. The first remains were actually discovered in the early 19th century. Um, so they've been known for a long time. Of course, people thought they were humans at first, but it took a while, About the mid 19th century, they realized that they were a bit different, normal humans. And then it's something that was, um, picked up once we had a better understanding of evolution. Um, so what uh what Svante Svante Pepper was studying these uh these Neanderthals but he was also very interested in the notion of doing analysis using DNA and using ancient DNA to do this analysis and this is quite a challenging thing um because DNA is quite a fragile molecule and it does not really last a long time um you've probably All familiar with Jurassic Park, and you know there's a lot of speculation at one point whether that would actually possible to get DNA of dinosaurs like they did in the movie and clone uh, clone dinosaurs in the modern age, and it turns out it's just not possible. DNA does not last that long, but it does last lot can last a surprising um, surprising length of time given the right conditions. And this is what Svante Paabo found. He developed techniques to basically extract ancient DNA and sequence it. He started with uh, mitochondrial DNA. Um, He got some mitochondrial DNA of Neanderthals from bone samples and mitochondrial DNA. um, I don't know how much people know about mitochondria. They are these organelles kind of sort of bits inside the cells that um yeah, basically the energy powerhouses of our our cells they are believed to be descended from bacteria that were somehow captured by our cells uh, and been put to work um generating uh energy for us um they have their own dna inside them most of the dna of our cells is in the nucleus but the D- mitochondria have their own dna and it's a lot smaller bit of dna but there is a lot of it because there's a lot of mitochondria in cells. So that was where they started with because it kind of, there's a lot of samples, um, to do, um, you know, there was a lot of challenges with this as said DNA, uh, decays over time. It also gets contaminated with bacteria and, you know, humans who are handling this material. But they, first of all, they managed to, um, get the mitochondrial DNA, and then they managed to sequence parts of, um, the, uh, the nuclear DNA get a better idea of what neanderthal genes were like eventually in um, 2010 they were able to sequence the entire neanderthal genome and give us a bit of a picture of um, of how they evolved and that was kind of interesting thing from that you can see how different they are to modern humans and they're able to calculate that they uh, diverged from us around 800,000 years ago which is quite a long oh time. wow
0: that's really that's really early
1: yeah um so I should say that this um this bone that they sample was about forty thousand years old. The DNA was not eight hundred thousand years old. They look at the DNA, they look at the differences between um between the Neanderthal DNA and human DNA, and they look at the rate of mutations, that sort of thing, and they can calculate roughly how long
0: uh evolutionary time they diverged. So basically basically if the if the Neanderthal samples are forty thousand years old but they diverge from Homo sapiens eight hundred thousand years ago. That means they were coexisting for hundreds of thousands of years, basically.
1: Well, th- well, this is where it gets a bit complicated because they're in different locations generally, um, and this is as a as a kind of I look. Human origins is a very interesting topic. It's something that people are very passionate about. And there are a lot of unknowns, a lot of things we don't quite know. So it's possible that Neanderthals actually, uh, they're mostly known from Europe and sort of Western Asia. It's possible that they um, evolved more in that region rather than in Africa. Um, there have been different sort of skills of thought on the idea. Whereas humans modern humans were basically in Africa until uh, about 70,000 years ago when they're believed to have um, migrated to the Middle East and then spread out throughout the rest of the world. So uh, they were together a long time, but not hundreds of thousands of years necessarily. Uh, more like tens of thousands of years when humans left Af- homo sapiens left Africa. Uh, the animals okay. before that were kicking around in in Europe and they weren't you know, they had their own uh, they had tools they had uh, I believe some rudimentary culture we've seen some of the you know, indications of their um, their cultural practices but they did not over their hundreds of thousands of years that they were living uh, living there in these areas they did not change that much they did not develop their culture in the same way that homo sapiens did over time um, but yeah so this is a pretty exciting thing. Uh, but they, then, they, of course, they wanted to compare this to get an idea of what Neanderthals is really like. You don't just do one um, sample. You've got to find other samples of bones. You've got to examine other specimens to make sure that you understand the, the evolution what the true picture of the species is like. Um, eventually, they found a bone from a cave in Siberia, the Denisova Cave. It's a small finger bone. Um, and they did DNA analysis and that they sequenced it. And they were very surprised. Uh, Sante and his team were very surprised to find that it was not related to the Neanderthals or to modern humans. It was a completely different species. And this is where our mystery species, the Denisovans come from. They were essentially. Uh, some extra species, it turns out, some unknown, previously unknown species of hominin that was also existing outside of Africa at the same time. Uh, these ones were more in more in Eastern Asia, um, I think two other locations have been found apart from Siberia. There's been a location in the Tibetan Plateau and another one in Laos. Um, and these are just fragments of bones, like we're talking about or teeth or jaw bones, these sort of things. We've only got very fragment, very small fragments of the Denisovans. We don't know much about them at all. We don't really know much about their lifestyle, what they did, anything like that. We've only got the scantest evidence. All we have is from their DNA. We know that they were similar, but different, distinct to the Neanderthals, which is quite a surprising thing. So there's they're still a big puzzle for us to figure out what their Deansivans were like. The Neanderthals have left a lot of artifacts and stuff We know a lot about there's a lot more bones of Neanderthals, complete skeletons, that sort of thing. But yeah, the Denisovans, um, it's very sparse evidence. Um, But what we do know is that when we compare the genes from Neanderthals and Denisovans to modern humans, we find out, yeah, they are separate species, but there are some similarities. And it seems that in those tens of thousands of years that humans were invading uh, Europe and Asia, there was a bit of mixing going on between the three species and uh those of us who basically have descendants uh, so ancestors from outside africa all carry bits of dna of these other ancient hominins um i believe if you go the further west you go on that continent um the more uh neanderthal you have i think it's about one to two percent Neanderthal um, DNA in your genome if you're in Western Europe, whereas when you get into Eastern Asia, um, up to 6% of the DNA appears to be um, similar to Denisovans. Um, so it's a, a significant amount there and they found that looking at the genes that are common with Neanderthals and Denisovans, that some of it is obviously, as you'd imagine, quite useful um some of our immune system things we used to fight infections come from neanderthals and some of there's one particular mutation from Denisovans that is found in people who are adapted to living in high altitudes uh, which again may be, may be not surprised when you consider where they were from so yeah look as i said when you call someone a neanderthal you kind of think you're insulting them but you're not entirely wrong because a lot of us carry neanderthal dna within us and so yeah i think that's something to be to be aware of that these are these ancient species that we know very little about in the case of the Denisovans, but parts of them live on in us and that is kind of a i guess an exciting thing and it shows that um i don't know the early human world was a a colorful and interactive place shall we say
0: well certainly multicultural at least multicultural yeah
1: And yeah, and that's what I said. This is mostly in people whose whose ancestry is outside Africa. People with African heritage have much less of this. I mean, there's been a lot of mixing between humans around the world since. But yeah, you you can see quite a um, strong pattern that um, there is much more genetic diversity generally within Africa and um, does not share much of the Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA, which came from outside Africa. So it's a good indication that we're gradually getting this picture of how we evolved and how we spread across the world and how we mixed with the uh extinct relatives who were there before us and presumably there was mixing with other hominins in africa but we don't have good evidence for that because dna um last longer in these kind of cold dry climates you get in caves in siberia and that sort of thing and on the african continent the dna hasn't lasted as long so until we get some ancient dna more ancient dna from africa uh, we're in, a bit in the dark of how we evolved well, we can see certainly um what the denizens and neanderthals were like uh 40, years ago we're less clear on what humans were like at that at that time frame
0: well yeah it makes sense you can only compare to something you've got and if we don't have that sample then we can't really match exactly exactly
1: but you know technology will improve and maybe we'll eventually be able to resurrect some ancient dna from some of our other ancestors in other parts of the world
0: i think we're lost
1: we're not lost not even any short-range radio signals yet except for a single very powerful radio emission of course a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling because that's uh, mostly on the theoretical side what's so far across australia on the community radio network you're listening to lost
0: in science you are listening to lost in science now we often hear people say things that criticize science for not doing enough to solve the problems of everyday people as in they can put a man on the moon, but they can't solve peak hour traffic.
1: We, we can um we can sequence a
0: Denisovan DNA, but we can't tell us how to boil an egg. Or yeah, or, or you know they can they can crash a spaceship into an asteroid to alter its course, but they can't fix whatever thing is annoying me right now. That's right. Uh, but I think that's I think that's a bit unfair to science. There's a lot of the universe to investigate. Let's be clear, and not every problem seems to fall under the umbrella of a particular scientific discipline. And I mean, you know, like you were saying, Chris, they even the Nobel prize categories, they sort of massage them to fit whatever prize they want to award that year. Um, But look, some problems do seem universal. And one of those to which I'm sure uh, Chris can attest is getting babies to go to sleep Um, and, and, getting them back to sleep when they wake up crying. Um, Well, fret not, parents and caregivers of the world, science has gone to work on this problem and they've solved it once and for all, or maybe. Uh, What what took them so long is what I want to know. (laughs) They were overtired because their babies wouldn't sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Look, whether they've solved it once and for all, it's interesting that, that they've sort of, Put the scientific method to work on this actual problem so the problem of babies waking up crying is a big one for some people who care for babies not all babies wake up crying all the time but most will at some time
1: yeah. Now, this is actually this is this is actually really interesting um because um just you know thinking about your point like this is a very common thing um now sorry to interrupt you here but like this is a bit late for for me with our our twins who are now two years old um, is something that was a big deal say 18 months ago or that sort of stuff and um, at the time being a science-based person I looked for the research and was surprised by the lack of quality research on what is a universal problem and it is actually surprising that they've taken so long to come to this and i am be interested to find out how they did the experiment and whether there are some challenges in doing it that make it so hard because surely this is something that will matter a lot to a lot of people
0: yeah, I absolutely will. And, and um, you know, as I said, not all babies wake up crying all the time, but some do a lot of the time and most will at some time wake up crying. But according to a recent review, which they uh, have covered in the paper that I'm gonna talk about in a minute, 20 to 30% of babies cry excessively and have sleep problems for no obvious reason. As in, they're not hungry, they don't need a nappy change, they're not ill, they just wake up and cry. And, you know, 30% is quite a high number. You know, you can, you can win elections on that sort of margin, really. But, um, so that, it would seem to be a pretty widespread problem. And there's a lot of anecdotal information around solutions for this, but a group of Japanese scientists at the Riken Center for Brain Science in Saitama decided to closely monitor responses to crying babies to find out exactly what worked best to to fix this problem. So they got 21 healthy four to five month old infants in Italy and Japan. They they were in two different locations and they got their mothers to participate in an experiment to figure out what combination of actions was best to get babies to go to sleep. Um, So, they uh monitored the actions of the babies and their mothers there weren't there were alternative carers involved um but in the data they ended up it ended up they just used the mothers and the babies rather than fathers and grandmothers and whoever else might have been around just because the data didn't match as well with the other participants and it would have been a different statistical analysis and there's a whole lot of reasons they didn't Mm -hmm. but anyway Um, the experiment was on physical responses of carrying and holding babies, so it may not be important you know who was actually doing the carrying but then again it might this is a scientific experiment they can't rule out there's some confounding factors obviously but what they did was they monitored the baby's heartbeat using ECG and they also recorded video of the baby's responses to the tasks allocated to the mothers in order to try and get them to sleep they Another, another interesting um, sort of feature is that they conducted the experiments in the baby's home so they were a familiar environment in all cases um, which again that could suggest there might be some you know potentially confounding factors that's that's probably more for statistical analysis than anything else um, and they also prepared the areas so they they're kind of as as similar as they could make them but they, got all the furniture out of the way and stuff so people could walk around and and do this experiment without falling over things and with you know concentrating on on the baby and not on you know tripping over uh nappy bags or whatever that might have been there so uh they tested four actions and they timed short versions of 30 seconds or long versions of five minutes of these actions and they're pretty common Uh, reactions to crying babies it's almost like people have an instinct to do these things anyway so the first one is holding the baby and walking around that is that is an action that they measured they measured holding the baby and sitting down Mm -hmm. they measured laying the baby in a stationary cot or bed and the fourth one was they laid the baby in a movable bed, like a stroller or a rocking cradle. Ah, yeah, yeah. And, and they moved the cradle or they moved the stroller to sort of create the motion. Yeah,
1: very very popular things to sell parents, those kind of rocking
0: cradles, yeah. Absolutely, and bouncer nets and all sorts of stuff yeah. to keep keep the baby moving. So what they found from their analysis was that holding a baby sitting down or holding a baby standing still didn't have much effect on a crying baby so just the mother just holding the baby it doesn't stop the baby crying according to the analysis Um, but that if you walk around holding the crying baby it will stop the baby crying and Uh promote sleep in the crying baby but they also found that non-crying babies were not more likely to sleep while being carried oh so i thought that that's an interesting finding that they found if the baby's not crying doesn't matter if you're walking around and carrying the baby it's not more likely to go to fall asleep so the crying might be linked to how tired the baby is which is again another piece of you know oh they're just too tired or whatever you hear that from people when babies are crying for no apparent reason um so the other th- the other part about these tests is they were carried out during the day when the babies were normally awake so it was only you know if they're normally awake and they're not crying walking around you can carry a baby and show it stuff and it'll just look around and okay interact and and that sort of thing so it's that's kind of not surprising but it, it is interesting that a crying baby is more likely to go to sleep if it's walking around with you but a not crying baby is not more likely to go to sleep i thought that was an interesting um finding
1: well i guess if it's, if it's sleep time and it's crying because as you said it, it's woken up and you know say so it's woken up because for whatever reason and it's, it wants its comfort from its parent then getting that comfort is going to put it back to sleep whereas an awake baby uh
0: is not going to be no it, it wants put to the do way. yeah yeah <laughs> Um, but they think they think this is uh, called a transport response, which is something that has been observed in animals that move their babies to comfort them. Like, you know, even cats and things do that when they when they can't, you know, they, they pick up their baby and they carry them somewhere else and that calms down the baby. So there, there may be some innate response to this. But uh, in a finding that will come as no surprise to parents anywhere, laying down the baby resulted in either the baby going into deeper sleep or waking up completely uh-huh. and I can see by the look on Chris's face that he does know that that is exactly what happens yeah. and there's no real, there's no real predicting. Um, so, you know, you've got to put them down eventually because you've got to do other things like possibly even go to sleep yourself. Um, but often, often they'll go to sleep completely or they'll wake up and you've got to go through the whole process again or some other process or some other culmination. Well, they did find was that a combination of a five minute carrying and moving with the baby, yeah, followed by five to eight minutes sitting with the baby resulted them into successfully going to sleep when you put them back in their bed. More uh-huh. often than, more often than not. So you carry them around, you're moving around with them for five minutes or so. You sit down with them and keep holding them still five to eight minutes and then put them in their bed that is the most or that had the most successful getting the baby to sleep results of all of the combinations of actions that people were taking
1: right so you sort of calm them get them to sleep and then you don't put them in the bed straight away you let them settle further get deeper into sleep holding them and then you
0: put them in yes right that is that is the key and and what they what they suggest in their paper which was published in current biology is that the five to eight minute period of holding them still is this like you know how sleep periods are broken up into time periods the five to eight minute period is a sleep period of a four to five month old baby which all the babies were in this uh in this study so they actually drop from from light sleep into heavy sleep in that five to eight minute period and that is why you're able to put them down successfully because they've they've gone to the next phase of sleep in that period
1: the challenge i found in the middle of night always was waiting for that because i would you know try and settle them i think i was make going for 10 minutes to be safe and Mm. so you sit there watching the clock going wait for my 10 minutes and then two hours later you wake up (laughs)
0: <laughs> with a baby in your arms still <laughs> waking up who's
1: waking up in yes
0: well the, the trick is there obviously i think chris is to set an alarm that goes off after eight minutes and that oh would yeah, really yeah help. okay
1: that's really that would really help, help. yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: good yeah. Idea. great yeah. idea great idea um so look this study was uh based on observation of various animal behaviors which which they led them to believe there was an innate response in in the motion of of carrying babies and this seems to be something that happens in the animal kingdom as well it is quite a small study there was only uh 21 i think participants Mm. in the study 21 babies which is not a huge number um obviously this could be expanded to find out more universal data for this issue which let's be honest probably costs real money in in economic terms in lost productivity for working parents around the world who don't get enough sleep because their babies are keeping them awake all night
1: there's a lot of people selling there's a lot of people selling sleep solutions to parents as well and that sort of thing and so that's the other thing interesting find that they've had they they obviously in this study they could only really test a few strictly defined scenarios and there'll be all kinds of people going oh well my patented sleep technique is Blah blah blah, and so there's probably a lot more research be done on these various patented sleep techniques.
0: Oh, absolutely! I'd love to see some, you know, some testing of various methods and um, you know uh, comparisons of different techniques of getting babies to sleep. But you know, of of all of the different combinations they tried, I think the four things that they did test are probably about the most common yep. things that people do already to try and get their babies to sleep. And the, and the series of walk around for five minutes with the baby, sit down for five to eight minutes with the baby, then put it back to bed. That was what they found worked the best. And it does fit with the sort of neurological and um, medical data they were collecting from the baby as well during that time. I think it's, it's great that people are actually doing this research and it's getting published. And um, to all the nans out there in the world who've been giving that advice for years, good on you for getting it right. Um, it has been useful for some people, I'm sure. But it is good to know that science isn't just about outer space. It can also be about inner peace. That is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at Lost in Science 1 on Twitter or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook page. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost Lost in Science!
1: listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.